welcome to episode number 49 of the Plant Powered Radio podcast series. On today's show from Toronto, Canada, Dr. Tushar Mehta. Dr. Tushar Mehta practices family, emergency, and addiction medicine in Toronto. He does volunteer medical work in India and Haiti, and he's co-founder of plantbaseddata.org, which is an online database collection of academic and institutional literature regarding the impacts of a plant-based lifestyle on health, environment, food security, and including the role of animal agriculture in creating pandemics. And thank you so much for taking the time today, Dr. Mehta. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Absolutely. So I always like to know about people's vegan journey. How did you find this path or were you raised this way? I do come from a culture where people are traditionally vegetarian, but I was brought up in the West and, and was not vegetarian. And maybe around the age of 15, 16, I started to get interested. But before that, my interest was really generated by traveling to India as a child and seeing a lot of poverty. You know, poverty that was so terrible that, that it really shocked me as a child. And I became very interested in social justice issues. So that's where it all began. Later on, I also uh, realized that these social justice issues and the same uh, idea of compassion extends to animals and the environment. And yeah, that's the longest short of it. So I eventually became vegetarian and then much later on vegan. So that connection between the suffering of humans and the suffering of animals, was that just a natural kind of evolution? Was it inspired by something that you read or saw? Or? Well, I think there's a lot of people that you meet along the way uh, who influence you, as well as things that you read, things that you see in the media. So there is a combination of all, all these things, uh, you know, and, and it's definitely a lot of important people that you learn from. That's, a, that's really good to know, because I think as vegans, we try to help others find that path, and we're never really sure the impact we have. But it's, it's nice to know that at some point, a word or a, a comment or just the way we are in the world might have influence on other people, right? So. It definitely. For me, it wasn't like a single thing that was a transition point, but the accumulation of many things over time. So I don't ever believe that it's my role to like convert anybody to being you know, vegan or interested in environment or anything like that. But we are just always one of many influences. Certainly plantbaseddata.org is a great place to find out lots of reasons why, you know, we're excited to be vegans. And there's a lot of information there. Who created this site and who is it meant for? What kind of information is there? Yeah, so plant-based data is, is not uh, necessarily about veganism per se. It is an amalgamation of the best evidence or as much of the best evidence that we can gather, our, our team, about plant-based diet as it influences health, environment, zoonotic pandemics, and more, right? And as we're trying to amalgamate as much of this literature as possible, and the literature does not necessarily specify veganism, although that is definitely one recurring theme amongst the academic literature. Um, but uh, uh, most of the literature just talks about, you know, plant versus animal-based foods in their, in terms of their relative impacts. Okay, cool. And um, so your work in Haiti and India, I'm interested to know, especially Haiti is, well, both places really, but what, what was it this food justice thing that led you to these places or just as a doctor, you were inspired to go and help people? Yeah, I mean, one of my reasons for becoming a physician was so that I can do work that would help people. So that means 
trying to help people here in our own communities in our own country, but also working internationally. And uh, for about 10 years, I would spend one month every year of volunteering in a hospital in rural India. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time working there and learned many things there as well. More recently, uh, over the past maybe four or five years, I've been, I joined with a project in Haiti. So I work with a small local uh, community group in Haiti. And together, um, we're helping to run a school uh, with the group as well as a family planning program and some of the other activities. It's been hard over the past couple of years because Haiti's been in a bad state, not just now where it's in the news, but it's, you know, things have been pretty bad for, for, for two years. I mean, they were bad before that, but much worse for the past two years. So it's, it's been difficult to go there in person um, during this time. Yeah, ever since they got rid of Aristide, things kind of went downhill from there. It seems like there was some hope with um, trying to alleviate poverty, I think, previous. And and so I'm curious about, uh, you know, the state of healthcare and whether, like, how much of it is westernized in these places and how much do they, are they able to incorporate their traditional knowledge of herbs and other sort of more ancient healing methods or do they? I mean, I think that's a complicated question. Um, you know, with any form of medicine, whether it's Western medicine or forms of traditional medicine, there are things that, that work. There are things that work, but have side effects. There are things that don't work that we thought were going to work, you know? Um, and, you know, my role is, is, is mainly practicing Western medicine. So I'm not super familiar with what's happening in Haiti around traditional medicines. Uh, but I know that in India, there are concurrent in a lot of times, Western medicine and naturopathic medicine and Ayurvedic medicine are kind of mixed together in India. And um, you can, you can find ways of combining some of these things um, and, um, and try to pick the best, uh, best of each uh, when they, when they're most appropriate. Mm -hmm. not, neither, you know, none of these things are always appropriate every single time. And you have to find out the times when they are appropriate, and when they do work, and they do combine well, and, and, you know, uh, get the most out of it. It's nice when they can complement each other, you know? Yeah. Okay. And so you've just done, I think, a double shift as an emergency doctor. And, and so what emergency must be a crazy place to be right now in Ontario and for the past while, hey? It wasn't a double shift. It was just a, a shift that was was the evening and then went quite late overnight. But yeah, emergency medicine is always a challenge. And uh, one of the fortunate things is that uh, there's many fortunate things about it is that uh, in the two hospitals where I work, there's a great, great team of doctors and nurses and other health professionals right down to the uh, you know, technicians who, who work there, people who draw blood, do ECGs and uh, the, the clerks that we work with. So there's a lot of teamwork. Um, emergency medicine is always going to uh, challenge your your brain cells. It's going to make you work better as a, as a team player. And uh, being a physician and being involved in emergency medicine uh, just brings you down to earth. And it also challenges you to be very evidence-based. So uh, it's good training to be able to look at studies and evaluate them uh, for their scientific um, merit and to interpret scientific studies really well. So, so um, the uh, work that I do and the training that I have uh, very much helps me interpret the science with regards to plant-based diet, uh, environment, um, health, and other things too. So um, it's a good background to um, help 
uh, educate uh, other people uh, about the scientific literature. Okay. And also, uh, before we leave your background, you mentioned that you have had experience as a part of the Sea Shepherd team as well. That's right. In 2012, 2013, um, I was one of the crew uh, in Operation Zero Tolerance. Uh, it's one of the missions where uh, Sea Shepherd uh, annually was going to the Southern Ocean, uh, to the Antarctic waters, and trying to interfere and essentially stop uh, the Japanese whaling fleet from killing whales every single year. And it was a, it, it, it was, it was a great um, experience. Uh, I played a small role. I was a medical officer and one of the uh, quartermasters on, on the ships there. I spent uh, time with Paul Watson on the ship as well and, um, and, and learned a lot. Spent the the time that I had at sea to to learn a lot of things about environmental issues while I was there. I did a lot of reading. You have a lot of time to do a lot of reading when you're out there. Paul's quite a guy. Hey, I mean, he's one of the great Canadian heroes, really. And is the sea, do you get the sense that that's just where he's meant to be when he's on those ships? I think that is a very natural place for him to, to be. And he's, he's an incredible human being, uh, brilliant mind, uh, great leader, and you know, committed individual. I think he's, he's one of the most important people in, in modern history. And uh, yeah, yeah. And a fantastic person. You know, he really cares about everybody on the ships. And, um, and he's, uh, you know, thinking all the time. You know, he's a very, very deep thinker, as well as a person who, who acts on his uh, beliefs. I love that all the ships are vegan. The, the cooking is all vegan, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the reasons why I joined the, the Sea Shepherd, because when you're trying to protect the environment to save whales, you don't want to turn around and then you know, kill chickens or whatever it is. And they understood that. They came to that understanding over time. And so I felt that naturally uh, it's a place where I'd like to, to also help out. It's a, you know, they're aligned with all my values. And they, they do a, they've done a lot of humanitarian work over the years as well. Sea Shepherd has done uh, work where they've delivered medicines and other things. They've used their ships uh, to help um, humans in crisis as well. And even one of the, the captains of Sea Shepherd has been involved in uh, rescuing, uh, um, you know, uh, refugees who are trying to reach Europe and are drowning in the waters you know their their ships capsize and and people are drowning rescuing them and bringing them to safety even when she um uh was getting in trouble from european governments for doing so hmm. and so again you know there's a there's a nexus there of compassion towards the environment animals and humans all in one cool yeah they're a great organization Okay, let's talk about uh, what's going on in the world. When you first heard about the coronavirus and the chance of a pandemic, you know, what was your reaction? Were you surprised at this? Oh my gosh, how could we possibly have a pandemic? Or was this something on your radar already? It is something that was on my radar because uh, I've been practicing for a while and I was a physician during the, uh, the initial SARS 2002 outbreak. And at that time, the you know, predominating evidence is that this was a zoonotic disease that came about because we were breeding animals and concentrating animals. Uh, and most likely in this case, civet cats was an intermediate host uh, where collecting these animals also led to viral transmission amongst animals. And 
amplification of the amount of viruses that existed because you have many, many animals existed. There's a high viral burden amongst the animals, which means you have more opportunities for mutations because the more viruses are, the more mutations you get. And then some of those mutations come out and become a zoonotic disease that it impacts humans. Okay. So, so that's what uh, happened in SARS 2002. So there, okay. was a, there was that. Okay, and sorry, just to just for people, because there's all this talk about the source and the manufacturing of the virus, but like, did it come out of thin air? I mean, is that a possibility that some wizard scientist in a lab actually created this thing? Or where initially do these viruses come from? So the predominating science right now, okay, um, and, and, and there's very, very accepted science that most viruses, most zoonotic diseases that are affecting humans uh, right now, at least the emerging new ones that come and infect humans, they originate in animals. Uh, there are thousands upon thousands of species of animals, and there are viruses which reside within these animals, okay, in their natural populations. Now, most of the time, uh, viruses within animal populations are stable, okay? If you have some ducks that uh, exist on in, in certain environments, they have uh, influenza virus. So waterfowl are the original hosts of the influenza virus, okay? Now, it's a gastrointestinal virus for these animals, and it's generally in balance with the population of ducks. The, the virus doesn't really hurt them, and they kind of live in harmony with each other, because if the virus was to mutate into a dangerous strain and then kill off the family of ducks that within which a virus resided, then that would be the end of the virus too, okay? So evolutionarily, uh, the virus doesn't want to kill its host because if it's kill its host, it also ceases to exist. So natural selection favors the virus that has stability within the host population. And that's the same for most animals throughout nature. There are exceptions. There may always be a mutation that harms the host, but most cases uh, it'll kill off some of those uh, host animals and it will also die out itself, right? And the vast majority of viruses within nature are stable within their hosts. Now humans change this picture. First of all, uh, we collect animals in very, very high numbers and aggregate them together. Now that may be through through traditional farming, where now you have a farm with many different animals together that wouldn't naturally be together and in high numbers. It may be even more so in the setting of factory farming, where you have thousands, hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of animals on a single farm, or in the situation of bushmeat trade and wet market, where we're having this very high rate of capture, collection, and uh, then eventually, uh, you know, sale of the animals, you know, butchered animals or live animals, whatever, through wet markets um, that we've talked about in Asia, uh, that's, you know, it's in the media regarding uh, COVID-19, but also in other countries too, in including our own countries. And so we aggregate these animals together. So now you have, uh, let's say, a virus that is normally benign, but if you have dangerous mutations of the virus that can make the animal sick and may kill the animal or harm the animal, no problem. The virus may actually have a higher chance. Those mutations may actually have a higher chance of, uh, of surviving and spreading because you have all these animals crammed together. One animal dies, but you infect 10 others. It's not like you just 
uh, eliminate your host and then you end yourself, you're in very, very crowded situations with high numbers of animals and you can just keep spreading and spreading and spreading dangerous mutations. And then you accumulate more and more mutations as there's a high burden of virus amongst these captive animals. These animals are also sick and stressed. They have weakened immune systems. So the viruses transmit even more readily, okay? So this amplification of the number of viruses, the high number of infected animals, uh, an increased number of mutations lead to more and more uh, dangerous variants, which can be dangerous to the animals themselves because we see amongst farms outbreaks of viruses where you're killing off or making sick uh, entire you know, populations amongst these animal farms, right? And uh, we see that in many cases in different countries, uh, in Asia or here, sometimes they'll kill millions of chickens because there's some rampant virus going through and they just have to just kill all these chickens off to try and stop it from spreading. Um, African swine fever, for example, is a virus that's spreading amongst pigs in China and other parts of the world, and it has killed off more than a quarter of the world's pig population, this, this mm. virus that's spreading around. So these dangerous various mutations may affect animals. Sometimes they may go back and affect animals in nature because the farmed animals are, in, in, in many cases, still in, in some contact with wild animals. So you may spread these dangerous viruses back to wild animals and kill off make sick many wild animals and some variants also come back and affect humans right so these uh so these high number of mutations uh lead to some zoonotic disease that affects humans okay and and so that's sort of the mechanism that humans collect together animals and and have this process which doesn't exist in the natural world okay so that's one of the main things that we need to know. We need to know this mechanism. And this mechanism is very, very well established in the scientific literature. When it comes to COVID-19, the majority of the evidence points to these uh, wet markets in Wuhan. So the Hunan uh, wet market that was in Wuhan, China. Okay, And uh, many, many infected animals uh, with uh, coronavirus amongst this, uh, in this wet market. There were snakes, there were pangolins, and there were other animals that were infected. But the pangolins uh, had uh, uh, variants of coronavirus that was most closely, uh, that most closely resembled the type of COVID uh, coronavirus that caused COVID-19 amongst humans. Okay, so the majority of the evidence really points to this wet market origin of the virus, and it doesn't just come out of thin air. It's it's these these coronaviruses exist in nature. They exist amongst these animals. They exist amongst bats as well. And so the animal in nature may get the virus from a bat, but what more likely happens is that when you have these huge warehouses of animals, bats like to come in there too. When they see these big warehouses, those are kind of like caves and they simulate places that bats would also like. And they might, bats may find food there, whether they eat flies or whatever. And then bats poop and they urinate and they spread their viruses and their secretions amongst the animals in those wet markets as well. And that starts a chain of transmission within these wet markets. Again, high numbers of uh, animals uh, passing viruses amongst each other. In many cases, when one species passes a virus to another species and you get combinations of virus within different animals, that 
leads to higher rates of mutation and rec genetic recombination of viruses as well. So there's that process also. And then eventually coming out with a variant that affected uh, humans and, and turned into COVID-19. So the evidence points to that. Um, there is this theory of a lab-related uh, virus. And so that is that, you know, people in, in these, in the laboratories, in, in this one lab in, in, in Wuhan, um, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, they're, you know, collecting samples of viruses from different bats and other places and doing research on them. Okay. It's not a lab that is a military lab that's trying to create biological weapons or anything like that. It's just collecting and researching different viruses from different and places. Why yeah. would humans, I know, because in other countries too, they're doing this, they're collecting viruses to examine them. And why do we do that as humans? What's the point of that? Well, we, we study everything. We, we study plants, we study viruses, we study animals, we, we study everything. Okay. But also there's an interest that, you know, these things cause human disease. So we want to know more about what their genetics are. We want to know what uh, properties they have, what animals they live amongst, what variants exist, how fast do they mutate. So they may not have any intention in doing any harm. They may fully have intention to help humans by understanding these viruses better. And, and uh, so that's probably their aim. But maybe one of the viruses they collected somehow escaped from the lab. For example, a researcher getting sick may get sick from the virus that they are studying and then spread it amongst other humans, right? That is a possibility. And the, the wet market may still play a role because let's say a, a lab researcher gets sick and then goes to the wet market and makes an animal sick or some people sick in the wet market and they spread it to animals. And then there's further mutation and spread amongst the animals, which eventually comes back to humans. So that is one of the mechanisms that people say could occur with a lab leak. There could be a lab leak, which then uh, goes to the, gets to the wet market. And then the animals in the wet market further amplify and cause further mutations to the virus, which then comes back into humans that are at the wet market and then continues to infect people around the world. So even if there was a lab leak, the wet market may play a role in further mutations, amplifications, and spread of a more dangerous variant. However, there's no good evidence of this because that lab is not some kind of a secret lab. It's a lab that publishes its results and talks about the research that it's doing. And the types of coronavirus that were studied in the Wuhan lab according to you know, one of the most important papers that are on the subject, is that the genetic typing of the coronavirus varieties that were being studied in the lab were very different than COVID-19 coronavirus. So it's very unlikely that one of the lab viruses was the progenitor of the COVID-19 virus, because these people it's not like they hide their research or anything like that. And the genetics of the, you know, viruses in, in the lab were simply so different than COVID-19. But people are upset that the lab was not, the, the lab theory of spread was not um, researched well enough. Okay. There is some mistrust of China and, and what happens in these in, in Chinese labs. And, and I think that that feeds into it as well. But this particular lab, and, and certainly China and other countries do research on modifying viruses, what they call augmenting viruses, uh, so that they can be more infective and doing research like that. But I don't think from what, from what I understand, I don't think this was one of those types of labs that was, was doing that kind of work.
right? So, hmm. um, you know, it, it does behoove the scientific community to to look at the lab more closely and not dismiss it so easily. And, and that was one of the criticisms. But at the same time, there's no strong evidence that there was any genetic relationship between viruses studied at the lab and the coronavirus that has spread around the world and variants thereof. Okay, okay. Um, Most of the evidence really shows that, that the ones that existed in pangolins and other animals there, they had these lot of related coronaviruses amongst many of the animals in the wet market. And the ones from pangolins are the ones that most closely resemble that which uh, happened in humans. You can have a mechanism too where pangolins infected humans and you had further mutation in humans from there that that caused even more spread. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that could have happened, but the most likelihood is that the wet markets played a, a large role in this. So you, you had experience with SARS, so you, you were familiar with the infectious disease situation. And so when you heard about this, um, especially as a vegan, you know that this is connected to the exploitation of animals. Did you sort of think, you know, oh, well, it's just a matter of time. As I've heard some vegan doctors say, it's just a matter of time before the next pandemic. Well, I don't think being vegan necessarily uh, affected my thinking about this process. But I do remember when SARS came out in 2002, this was different than anything that we learned about in medical school, right? That, that you have these human activities which generate viruses amongst animals and then those animals spread into humans, right? That was the first time I learned about that so much. I probably learned about it somewhat before, but this was like, you know, really living it at the time. Now, thankfully, SARS 2002 wasn't as widely spread. It didn't cause as much damage, although it definitely, you know, hurt people um, and, and, and killed, you know, innocent people. Um, you know, but we lived it because we had to wear all the protective gear and take all the precautions. And there was that real anxiety and fear of what could happen. And luckily, we were able to contain it. Then there was a swine flu in 2009. And again, it's coming from animals. And at this point, I'm learning more and more that we're breeding animals, but at the same time, we're breeding viruses and that these viruses come into humans. And in fact, annual influenza, you know, you get people get the flu shot every year to also help protect us from influenza A, which is a zoonosis. Every year, influenza A, there's influenza A and there's B. B mostly circulates just amongst humans, um, but A comes yearly from animal populations into humans. That annual flu that we're kind of used to, uh, which does kill some people every year, is zoonotic disease. But once in a while, you get a worse variation. That was the 2009 swine flu. And there was a, a, a young girl that um, died in the emergency department uh, where I work. And many people around the world did die from the swine flu. So I'm learning more about this. So then when this happened again in, in 2019, uh, again, we're not surprised. And one of the important people who turned me on to how prevalent uh, and important the process of zoonotic disease is Dr. Michael Greger, because you know his his videos and his book is is very powerful. It's just incredible the the references and studies that he's pulled together to you know um, amalgamate the research, you know, and, and put it in the form of his books and, and, and talks. You know, he's quite a hero, I think, in this field in terms of putting information together and really teaching people about it. So looking at that more closely, I realized that this is not a surprise. This is something that as we breed animals, we're going to breed viruses and other diseases. And in many cases, it, we're, we're just con get continuous risk of, of getting more zoonosis. And the, the next pandemic could easily be worse than COVID-19. 
right? You could just have properties that cause it to spread faster or have a higher mortality rate or both. And you can have, you know, double the number of deaths. You can have five or 10 times the number of deaths if things are really bad. That, that would be very devastating. So then the variants are somehow connected to mink farms, I think. Is it, is it true that somebody gets infected with COVID-19 and then they're at work perhaps in a mink farm and then that the virus has gone into the mink and mutated and come back. I think I've, I think, is that correct? Or where, and especially the Delta variant, which now is resistant to the, um, what they're calling the vaccine, right? You know, I don't want to get too much into all the, the different variants um, because, you know, that, that is something that I've not particularly studied as intensely, but what there, what I do have a lot of good papers about in plant-based data, what we do have is that there's excellent evidence that animals transmit coronavirus amongst themselves in these wet markets or other situations where we, where we bring them together. Variants can affect humans coming from animals to affect humans. Humans can spread it back to animals. There's plenty of examples where humans have spread it to mink, spread it to other animals as well, like tigers, you know, that are in captivity, et cetera. So humans spread it back to animals. Again, you can have further mutation of those animals and then reinfect humans. So there's evidence in mink farms that people have spread it to mink and then other humans have, you know, uh, contracted it from mink, okay? So they've got it back from mink. I don't know if it was a, a, a different variant that came back from the mink or just the same coronavirus that went from humans to mink back to humans, uh, back to other humans, okay? So this, uh, this process happens and it, it just shows us that breeding billions of animals is a dangerous thing in terms of future pandemics. And in terms of future pandemics, uh, influenza is another big candidate, right? That we can get variants of influenza that can be very, uh, that can spread uh, very easily can it get, because it can, they can, influenza can have airborne spread as well as having high, uh, high pathogenicity. So be very dangerous and make people, you know, make some people very, very sick and cause death amongst, you know, so influenza is another type of virus where we can see um, a zoonotic spread uh, cause devastation amongst humans in the future. And there's other things too, this, this African swine fever that is affecting pigs around the world and especially in China, right? Killing off half the population of pigs in China and more than a quarter of the population of pigs in the world, these farmed pigs. We're talking about hundreds of millions of pigs that are being infected and dying. And it causes a hemorrhagic fever, uh, which means uh, there, there's bleeding, internal bleeding and other similar to what Ebola virus can do, but this is a very different virus than Ebola, but the effects can be similar, right? Now, pigs are very similar to humans. A lot of viruses that can affect one can affect the other. So mutations in this African swine fever could then come back and cause a similar disease in humans and could be very, very devastating. And there are, again, other viruses as well that can cause these kinds of problems. Historically, we've seen Viruses such as measles, which over the centuries has caused literally you know, tens and hundreds of millions of deaths. Okay, influenza. Uh, we've seen uh, smallpox. Smallpox has caused a lot of devastation amongst humans. Again, it's a zoonotic disease that has come from animals. HIV and Ebola are not so much from humans breeding animals or congregating them in high numbers, but it's through the uh, repeated uh, sort of hunting of 
certain types of animals, especially primates. And in the, you know, we're hunting millions of these primates. It's not like just some small thing that happens. There's millions and millions of primates that are hunted over the, uh, over the past century. And repeated exposure to simian immunodeficiency virus from these animals and repeated infections in humans. It's not just a single incidence. And then some of those SIV variants becoming uh, very infective in humans, perhaps some further mutation in humans too, but causing HIV type 1 and HIV type 2. Okay, so that's not through collecting them and causing amplification, but through repeated exposure, through a massive bushmeat uh, hunting and repeated exposure of, of millions and millions of exposures, right, from, from hunting millions and millions of animals. And then we have these SARS and COVID and swine flu of modern times. And the, the future potentials of, of new pandemics from new coronavirus, uh, influenza virus, other viruses like African swine fever and things like smallpox, because we've eradicated smallpox from the world, but cowpox still exists and different types of pox viruses still exist in, in animals that we breed like cattle. And they uh, mutate slowly, but the right types of mutations in some of these can cause a new type of smallpox to emerge. And again, that would cause a lot of devastation amongst humans. We would be able to certainly create a, a vaccine for it, but how many people would be hurt by the time everybody got the vaccine, right? And we've seen already that we're not good at sharing our vaccines. You know, all the rich people get vaccinated. Uh, some people are hesitant for vaccines. No vaccines have been given to anybody in Haiti. There's not a single dose that's been given within Haiti. And poor countries everywhere are seeing increase of coronavirus deaths today, now, and uh, have very, very little in the way of vaccine support so far. There's major social justice issues in terms of who gets hit the worst when it comes to these pandemics as well. And certainly, you know, having to live in crowded conditions in poorer countries as well and lower uh, perhaps food qualities and healthcare and that sort of thing plays a role as well. So um, what about all the animals in research that are used in research for medicines and other things? Is that a potential for a virus release as well? Uh, I think that is the concern that people had with the the concern around a lab leak from uh, the, the Wuhan Virology Institute that humans doing research on viruses, on animals, etc., could sometimes inadvertently infect humans. And these things have happened in the past, right? Um, but certainly animal farming, where we're breeding literally billions and billions of animals, that is a big generator of viral mutations, okay? Our labs, even if we tried, probably could not create a fraction of the mutations from the different viruses that just circulate amongst the animals that we breed or that we collect from the wild and put into markets. Okay, So the two major forms of mass animal agriculture are collective breeding of animals, i.e. factory farms, and then these wet market type situations where we take wild animals that we breed, other animals that we breed, and uh, collect animals from the wild and we cycle them through these wet markets and the throughput, you know, like per month, you know, millions of animals are going through per month. So the total number of animals may not be as much as factory farming, but we're still talking about millions of animals throughput. So again, a high biomass of animals and cross species uh, and multiple species, which leads to 
uh, greater chances of mutation. And just to put things in perspective, one thing I want to mention is that if you took all the animals in the wild, okay, we're talking about thousands of species of animals, okay, and you took all humans and all uh, the animals that we breed and put them on the other side of the scale, okay, if you just looked at mammals, humans plus our mammalian livestock compared to all wild mammals, wild mammals would be 4% of the biomass and humans plus our livestock would be 96% of the biomass. Okay. Like, so we outnumber our, in terms of our biomass, our, you know, cattle and goats and sheep and humans, you know, outweigh all wild mammals by many order, orders of magnitude. There are many more of us than there are them. So the amount of virus that we can generate amongst this captive population, our collective population is super high. The biodiversity amongst the small number of wild animals, the smaller biomass of wild animals is really high. So they contain lots of different viruses, which as I mentioned are mainly stable within their populations. But these viruses coming into our domesticated animals, the animals that we put through wet markets, uh, result in new opportunities at all times of generating variants that can affect humans. Right. And then as we're clear cutting land and destroying habitat, then those animals are forced into our environment more and more. So there's more yeah. chance of we force ourselves into their environments. Right. right. And when we have animal, uh, you know, our animal farming, when we have wet markets, when we have um, factory farming and, and so forth, we don't put them just right in the middle of our city and then surround them with a human population that which serves as a buffer from wild animals. We don't like this you know, very, very dirty industry and all this poop and blood and guts and smell right in the middle of our cities. We locate them at the outskirts of our cities and we're constantly expanding them into the natural world, infiltrating them into the natural world, which brings them into contact with wild animals and also displaces wild animals that look for new homes and are, you know, gonna always interface with, uh, with our animals. So, you know, that's, that's a constant process that's, that needs to be stopped really um, in terms of environmental protection, biodiversity protection, and also now pandemic protection. You know, I, I don't think we realized how important it is for us to think of, you know, having more plant-based diet and less animal agriculture for the sake of preventing uh, zoonotic disease as we do now. Now we have a much better experience of this, but I think that the word is not really out there in the mainstream, right? In the mainstream, people are talking more about, oh, did you get your vaccine or not? Do you wear a mask or not? Uh, can we have a vaccine passport and go to vacation or not? What we should be talking about is, do poor people have access to the vaccine? And what is the cause of this virus? And what is the cause, you know, with the potential risk of future viruses? That's what we should be talking about as much or more so than whether we're going to be able to go on vacation again, right? Yeah, and I don't have power to do a lot in my life, but I can distance myself. I can stop supporting the process of animal exploitation by making lifestyle choices that don't involve the consumption of these animals. That's what I can do as an individual. And I think as as a group of individuals, as 7 billion individuals, I mean, we can't all make that choice, but a lot of us can, and, uh, and it's important for us to make the right choice. Uh, I've curated the health section on plant-based data, and, you know, just starting with pandemic, you know, there's a few good papers coming out showing that people who have diabetes, and obesity, and uh, chronic diseases, heart disease, etc., when they do get coronavirus, 
they're more susceptible to severe infections and uh, higher mortality. And we know that these are diseases that can be prevented with a whole food, low fat, good quality plant-based diet, right? There's also one paper that came out, um, the title is Diet Quality and Risk of Severity of COVID-19, a Prospective Cohort Study. And it specifically found that looking at people who follow a, a high quality plant-based diet have a much less chance of getting severe disease if infected with COVID-19 and less chance of dying from COVID-19. So a healthy plant-based diet is beneficial to protect you from dying from COVID-19. You can still get infected with it. You can still spread it to other people, but uh, you have less chance of getting very sick or dying from yourself. Okay. So, you know, getting away from COVID-19 and zoonosis, uh, there is very, very good evidence that a healthy whole food, low fat plant-based diet Okay, with all the different amazing plant-based food groups and supplementing your B12, doing all the right things, okay, people have less heart disease, uh, less diabetes, less obesity, uh, less blood pressure problems, okay, so all these sort of chronic cardiometabolic diseases. And they also have certain types of cancer that are less in people on a whole food plant-based diet. So uh, prostate cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, pancreatic cancer, and some others, okay, are, are decreased. And even more important than these specific diseases is the idea of total mortality. For example, if I have less heart disease, but I have more of other disease and my death rate is just the same, you know, who really cares if I have less heart disease? The most important measure is a decrease in total or all-cause mortality. And there's good evidence that people who consume more plant-based proteins have lower all-cause mortality. And that is one of the key uh, data points that people have to look at. On top of that, it's not just about being vegan or plant-based, okay? It's about being high-quality plant-based because poor-quality plant-based foods are pretty much as bad as animal source foods. Maybe a little bit less bad, but they're bad. Okay, relatively speaking. So we want high quality plant-based foods. So more whole foods, minimally processed foods. So, you know, tofu is okay. It's a little bit of processing, but it's not bad. It's minimally processed, right? Same with soy milk and other things. You want whole grains, you know, whole grains. You want the fruits and vegetables, legumes of all kinds. Soy foods are amazing, okay? Don't believe these things that soy is bad for you. And uh, fruits, vegetables, nuts, and seeds are, are excellent. So a, a really good quality plant-based diet does protect from disease. And, and definitely, uh, there's a lot of environmental protection. We use far, far, far less land. So there's far less deforestation, less greenhouse gas emissions, less water usage, and a, a far lesser impact on biodiversity. And biodiversity is the most critical point, you know, because we are killing off biodiversity worldwide. So there's great literature about this on plant-based data. I have a lecture there that uh, and Nicholas, uh, my partner in the project, you know, also has a lecture there regarding environmental impacts of animal agriculture. So these are points that I hope that people take home and we can always do another uh, session to delve into the literature around this. There's so much, right? Yeah, thank mm -hmm. you so much. Is there anything that you want to say to Shar before we go? Uh, no, just thanks for what you're doing. And, um, you know, I encourage people to come and visit plant-based data and share it with your friends. Now it's, it's a bit of a nerdy website. Okay. You're going to see a lot of studies and academic literature and it might make your head spin a little bit. Come to plant-based data, maybe depending on what you're doing, start with our lectures. We have some videos, lectures, and podcasts there. I give a podcast on pandemics where I'm more comprehensive and a little bit more 
point by point, step by step explanation compared to you know what we're able to do here because here we're more of a general discussion and, and some other talks there. There's our summaries of key articles. I encourage everybody to click on our summaries of key articles and just scroll through because you'll see articles that we've summarized. And as you scroll through, you'll see the breadth of the literature regarding health, environment, and, and uh, pandemics, and so forth, you know, economics. And then if you're an academic person, a teacher, a journalist, activist, or, or whoever, you know, go into our libraries and see the collection of papers that we have there. But start with our talks and start with our summaries. Okay, that's a good place for people to start. Right. Thank you so much. And take good care of yourself, okay? Me right. too. And thanks to all the listeners out there. Hope everybody got something out of it. Our guest today was Dr. Tushar Mehta. You can find more Plant Powered Radio by visiting us on YouTube and by subscribing to this podcast for regular updates. We also air Tuesdays 11 till noon Pacific Time on commercial free radio at cfuv.ca. Please continue to be safe and considerate towards all species and thanks so much for listening. encircles the earth for all beings everywhere.